0: good morning we are back bostopia news with evan george to do what is one of my favorite activities which is going back to see when the boston elections department releases the final numbers the complete totals for the past election to try to figure out what actually happened and while overall this election was an absolute snooze fest everything was more or less predicted months and months in advance, we do actually get to learn one or two things by looking at how the different city councilors, and I'm just going to be focusing at the at large city council positions, how they fared across the city and what it tells us. And most importantly, and the thing that I was most curious about was how did those tier three level candidates being Catherine Vitale, Sean Nelson, Clifton Braithwaite do, particularly in certain neighborhoods. Because what I really wanted to try to figure out was, was there any political relevancy specifically to the two anti-vax candidates, Catherine Vitale and Sean Nelson? Did they have any purchase, any ideological and most importantly neighborhood foundations and bases where their agenda, their platforms, what they said had residents in certain neighborhoods and communities in Boston? And to answer that question, I am absolutely thrilled to tell you, no, they had zero political relevance. Now, we know, starting with the health precautions and policies around COVID, that that absolutely was a political rallying cry for many, many people, some who were already involved in politics and did it disingenuously, but many more, many people who have never really become politically active before for the first time were pushed into it. So I am not saying that that movement in and of itself is completely gone. However, to the extent that people were aware of these two candidates and who they were and what their positions were, there was no ideological center or basis for their message. Their performance overall was consistent across Boston, which means it had zero impact with their actual platform, with their actual history, with their actual agenda. And now it is very possible, this is what a big asterisk to this episode, is that they were covered so little, and I said it when I first did the podcast about them, and if you haven't listened to it, scroll down a little bit in my history feed, I think it's called tier three at large city councilors, or the rise of the anti-vax counselor. I think that was just one big title. Go listen to that because I go into a lot of their histories and how they're just very fascinating just people in general. And that that episode was probably the most amount of exposure they were ever going to get because Boston's media barely mentioned them. And to the extent that they did, They normally just added them on a list of, like, here are all the people running. I mean, I'll read you two examples. The Bay State banner, June 21st of last year. Yahoo Miller. Here he has listed under the at-large section. Challenging them are Henry Santana, who directs the city's office of civic organizing, political organizer Clifton Braithwaite, healthcare worker Sean Nelson, and Catherine Vitale, who is currently homeschooling their children. Nelson and Vitale gained notoriety as anti-vaccine activists who are frequently picketed at Mayor Michelle Wu's home during their public appearances. And now reading from WBUR's article, again titled, What You Need to Know About the Boston City Council Elections, November 1st by Nick DeCosta Kipler and Walter Wuthman. I apologize for any mispronunciations. Under their little sections, Catherine Tale, Where Does the Candidate Live, Dorchester, What the Candidate Does. According to a campaign website, Vitale lost her job working for a home health agency due to COVID-19 vaccine requirements. She went out to become an outspoken anti-vaccine activist and was once arrested for allegedly pushing a police officer while protesting at City Hall press conference. Vitaly denies that she pushed the officer and the charges were later dropped. Where the candidate stands? On the issues, Vitaly is opposed to overdevelopment in Boston, as well as the expansion of bike and bus lanes. She supports a fully elected Boston school committee. And for Sean Nelson, where the candidate lives, Dorchester, what the candidate does, a Dorchester native and Marine Corps veteran, Nelson now works as a certified nursing assistant. Nelson's website says he is running to represent Boston residents who feel ignored and unrepresented by the current government. Where the candidate stands, as a fellow anti-vaccine activist, he is running on a similar platform as Vitali. He opposes bike lanes, supports a fully elected school committee, and wants to create youth programs designed to keep juveniles busy and off the streets to combat violence. So to the extent they were mentioned, it highlighted them being anti-vaccine activists. And what I was very curious about was looking at the predominantly white conservative neighborhoods of Boston. Would they drastically or statistically overperform compared to how they did in other neighborhoods? Was them targeting Michelle Wu just going to be simple enough as they trolling of her to have a lot of the white conservative neighborhoods in Boston give them votes? Was there anti-vaccine activism enough to, again, have those demographics, probably the ones that were the most against vaccine requirements of police officers, for example, just give them votes for those issues. And when you actually look at the numbers, they performed more or less the same across the city. And to contrast them with the third or the other third-tier candidate, Clifton Braithwaite, who compared to the two, he performed right in the middle. He beat out Catherine Vitale. Overall, Catherine received 3.89% of the total vote. Clifton came in at 468 and Sean just beat him at 4.78. However, where Catherine and Sean are more or less consistent across the city, Clifton is actually vastly more politically relevant because he has such high performances in certain districts. And just from my vernacular, I'm probably going to mess up a lot during this episode, and I might say district when what I really mean is the ward and precinct, because they use, you know, a number structure, I think it's one through 21 or one through 22. And like ward four is not at all in district four. So if I slip for the rest of this episode as a big public disclaimer, I am looking at the neighborhoods in the ward and precinct levels, not how they translate into the districts. So if I slip and I say district again, I did the first one intentional for this little disclaimer, just in your mind, I'm talking about their ward-level performances. And I will try to tell you what neighborhoods I'm talking about. And the reason why I think it is a very effective method to try to measure political relevancy in this way is because in every other election, we can see where candidates perform on the ward and precinct level, and we overall kind of have a sense of the social, economic, and racial breakdowns of those areas. And those factors, and especially elements like Do you have an undergraduate or graduate degree, which is, of course, intertwined with race and with class? Those certain factors just give us a very good breakdown of who lives there and and how we do polling and basically the not so little secret about elections is you tend to vote on the same way that your neighbor does because of how much housing segregation exists in this country and especially in this city. And so let's take a little tour, a little trip around Boston. To look at how these tier three level candidates did, I then have some thoughts on the tier one candidates. I want to talk about how it was that Henry was able to beat Bridget for that final fourth slot, though that race wasn't really as compelling as it was made out to be. And I'm sure I'll leave you with some final thoughts as I tend to do. So tour around the city, Catherine, Sean and Clifton. How did you do? Now in Eastie, Catherine and Sean both secured over 5% of the vote. Clifton, just under 4. Over in Charlestown, which this is, you know, if we're just going numerically, should be one of the first good indicators of a whiter, more conservative electorate. And we have Catherine only coming in at 3.6% of the total vote. Sean outperforming her, 5.08. And Clifton at 257 Now moving down to the north end, the aquarium, city hall, Charles, MGH station. I think Chinatown is in this as well. We have Catherine, four point seven nine, Sean five point eight four, Clifton again still very low, three point four nine. So so far the candidates in Eastie, Charlestown, and like you know the northern part of downtown, we'll call it, they're more or less consistent. Like their numbers don't change. And this is also true when we get into, you know, I'll hop around to uh, Back Bay Fen- uh, Fenway Park area. This is number five. Catherine, 3.67. Sean, 5.57. Clifton, 3.63. The numbers are more or less consistent. Selfie, and this is really the first big one, is once we start getting into six and seven, this is the first thing I looked at. What did Selfie do, particularly with Catherine? Because Catherine also owns a store in this area. So you would think she would have a lot more neighborhood ties. And also, just as a little aside, the ownership of the store, I, I don't necessarily understand, given what I know about her economic history, and what I know about her, let's say, living situation. So how she owns the store is just kind of a puzzle piece to me. But anyway, judging by who she is and her demographic, I thought she would have performed better than this. But here are her numbers. So in six and seven, six is like seaport and like the northern part of Southie and seven is Southie and it goes a little bit to the west. Catherine, 4% and 3.7%. Sean, 5.7% and 5.5%. Clifton, 2.5%, 3.3%. So she's still more or less exactly where she is. She performed better in Eastie than she did in Southie. And the second I saw that, I breathed a sigh of relief and thought, oh, she has no political relevancy. The anti-vaxxers, that messaging did not work. And we can even look now at the southern part of Dorchester, 16, the one that was like the big, big controversy during redistricting. They have the highest turnout. This is where all the cops and firefighters live in the city. Catherine, 3.54. Sean, 4.16. Clifton, 3.2. And now, though, when we start heading west throughout Dorchester, now we start to see what I'll call the rise of Clifton as we get more and more into the neighborhoods of Boston that are majority black, majority people of color. So in 17, which is Dorchester, it's the largest neighborhood, the east part, by the water, is more or less where all of the white people live. And the now we're talking about the center part and Mattapan, 17. Catherine, 3.78. Sean, 4.13. Clifton, his first big bump, up at 8.12. And now we keep heading west. So now we're in the westernmost part of Dorchester, just east of Franklin Park. Catherine. Sean, 5.07. Clifton jumps up another big notch, 12.74. And in fact, Clifton beats Aaron Murphy. In this area, just like to the right, if you're looking at a map, just to the east of Franklin Park, the western part of Dorchester, Clifton is more politically relevant. And I didn't mention it before, but his breakdown, because he got the same amount of press, if not less than those two, Reading back from that WBUR article, Clifton. Where does the candidate live? Mattapan. What the candidate does? Braithwaite is a longtime community organizer who most recently worked on Suffolk County Sheriff Steve Tompkins' campaign. Where the candidate stands? Braithwaite says his own bid is centered around strengthening our community through equality, justice, and transparency. In an interview with the Boston Herald, he says he supports switching to a fully elected school committee and opposes the road diet being implemented in West Roxbury. So Clifton has a lot more ties to this community. And his numbers, they fluctuate so much wildly, which again just shows that in some neighborhoods he is actually politically relevant. Because as I've been outlining them, and I'm sure you've heard it yourself, Catherine really stays like under six and above three the entire time. Sean has a lot higher performances, but those are a lot more still like in the fives. And then every now and then it drops, you know, still above four. So, like, he just really just stays the same. But now let's head to Roxbury. Catherine, 3.36. Sean, this is at least for the areas that I focused on, his best performance at 6.8. So, you know, a little bit above what he's been doing, but nothing drastic. He got 5.8 in, like, the North End area. So 6.8 for him. Clifton pulls in again, 12.8, and yet again beats Aaron Murphy in Roxbury. So have we seen the end of Sean of Catherine politically? I hope so. If I had to guess, yes, because this was by far the weakest field. And just also have to point out with these percentages, and as we now are going to talk about the tier one candidates, kind of my plan anyway. So voter turnout was 19%, which... Of course, it's absolutely horrible. And so the only people that really came to vote were, as I always say, the same people who just always come out to vote habitually. So they're going to be like the most active, the most engaged, the most who actually learn about the candidates. And they're also just going to be the same old, generally speaking, whiter, generally speaking, more conservative voters who just vote routinely every two years or every year, like his clockwork and they will just vote for who they know. So neither one of these two, had, and even Clifton, had any really citywide name recognition, though it is very clear that Clifton has recognition in some predominant neighborhoods in Boston, whereas Sean and Catherine don't. And looking at their fundraising numbers, they, I don't think, are going to just slowly start building a base I don't really see them becoming perennial candidates. This was kind of just a one-shot, take a little bit of advantage of the still, like, COVID hangover. Though, I get a, on a quick tangent, I am so sick of reading in the media. People are have COVID fatigue. They're sick of hearing about it. Besides a very, very small percentage of people, everyone, everyone has moved on from the virus and is not in repeated in really any tangible way living their life right now. So if I have to read one more mainstream article that has people talking about, yeah, well, you know, people have just sick and tired of all these COVID policies. What policies? 99.9% of people are not facing anything that gets or interferes with their day-to-day life in terms of any minor things like mask mandates. Anyway, there was a couple of months, people, where you couldn't go to Chili's. And like that was it. I said it before, thirty percent of this country is gonna tell their grandkids about how for five years they were held at gunpoint to stay inside their house. All right, anyway, moving past that. Will they run again? I doubt it. And I'm very happy to see that their messaging, to the extent that people looked into it at all, had no relevancy. And honestly, kinda happy Clifton did. I mean, I don't agree with most. (laughs) I don't know how to measure it, Uh, policies, but Seems like a decent guy, and I'm glad that he beat Aaron Murphy in some neighborhoods. And so now let's take a look at those top candidates. And as I mentioned, for 2023, we had 19% voter turnout. In 2021, that number was at 28.9, so we'll just call it 29%. And of course, the big reason why the big increase was because that was a mayoral election a very competitive mayoral election, where still more than two-thirds of voters decided just to completely skip it. And what we can gain by looking at this data is kind of little. Mostly because of the big, big swing in the amount of voter participants, but also the fact that how weak the field was. Because all three of the incumbents, Aaron, Ruzzi, and Julia, they all increased their percentages from what they did previously, which of course makes sense because you just have less and less competitive seats. There was really only one. Now, however, Julia just marginally improved. Her numbers are more or less consistent across the neighborhoods, meaning she performed at relatively the same strength that she did two years ago. Whereas Rootsy overall, had a 5% increase. Rootsy went from 15.3% of the total vote in 2021 to 20.29%, so roughly 5% increase. And Aaron Murphy had the biggest jump, with Aaron Murphy performing at 12% of the total vote in 2021 and then 19.8% in 2023, which gives her a 7.8% increase. Now... Part of this could very well be that this is now their second time running. So they have just built up more and more name recognition. Whereas for Julia, whatever bump that she got from now having name recognition, she got back in that 2021 race because Julia has been on the city council longer. And so it's difficult for me to see, did Aaron and Rootsy benefit because they just had for the first time voter name recognition? Did they also benefit because of just the weak field? Or does this show that their image, their policies, their vibes are resonating with voters more now than they were two years ago? Or is it because they got relatively very, very positive media press, where Julia, every now and then, was roped in, most predominantly by the Boston Herald, in terms of the overall, quote-unquote, dysfunction? Though she definitely got it much, 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 much less than Kendra, than Ricardo, than Tanya. So it's difficult to know. But looking at the numbers, Erin improved the most. And all of the numbers kind of stay consistent, but she had some big jumps. So we'll just hop around a little bit so you can get a sense of how they did. In 2021, Erin for Eastie, 11%. I'm just going to start rounding. Aaron eleven percent, Rootsie, thirteen, Julia eighteen. Two years later, Aaron jumps up nineteen percent, Rootsie, eighteen percent, Julia seventeen percent. So she actually takes a dip. I think this is this and maybe one other are the only times when she dips a little. Still, you know, more or less the same, but still the dip. Going to the Back Bay area and Fenway, number five. Aaron goes from. in 2021 to 20% in 2023. Rootsie, 16%. She then goes to 21%. Julia, again, her other dip, 18%, down to 17%. Let's go over to the Seaport Southie area. Erin, and again, this is is Erin's base. This is her home. 2021, 12.3%. The following year, 27%. And I think I forgot to mention it before. So Erin ran previously, which is an advantage she had over Rootsie in terms of name recognition. However, since she didn't get in, I'm just treating like the name recognition that you get as being an incumbent. Though it is just important to recognize that Erin got in on her second swing. So this was her third time appearing on the ballot. So maybe relevant and maybe points to that she didn't just benefit from an increased name recognition. Though, again, how couldn't you not from being an incumbent? So it's just very hard to pull these things apart. I'm just giving you the information, some things I can't actually decipher through, because we just don't have that type of knowledge. But okay, back in the seaport Southie area, 6. Rootsie went from 8.5, that one I'll split, to 14%. And Julia, just under 11% in 2021, and then just over 11% in 2023. Staying in Southie, Erin, 18%. And then she jumps up to 27%. So she does have massive jumps. Rootsie, 8% goes to 12. Julia, 11% goes to 12. And now we'll just kind of stick to that Senate Dorchester Mattapan, looking at that's number 17. Erin, 9.5. She goes to 17. So Erin is seeing these increases, not just in like her home base area, Southie, But also now we're in, you know, center Dorchester-Mattapan. Rootsie goes from 17 to 23. Julia, 19 to 21. And now the two big ones, 14, which again, that West Dorchester, East of Franklin Park, where we saw Clifton really make his first big, big gains. Erin, 5.3. She goes to 12. So she's still increasing. Maybe not as drastic, but that's still a big jump. Rootsy, 16 to 22. Julia, 20 to 24. And then finally, number 12, Roxbury. Aaron, 4.5 to 12. Rootsy, 15 to 21. Julia, 22 to 24. So as I go through it with you, I think it is very clear that the person who took the biggest step was Erin Murphy, going from the first time she got elected, 2021, to this year. And that jump we just saw was all over the city, which means it is not necessarily because of any certain political ideology, because we generally see that. And of course, that is normally reflected via race. And again, she is performing. Her levels of increases were more or less the same everywhere. And I think in that breakdown, I didn't even mention what was probably her biggest win. That was the 16, that Adams Village area, where in 2023, she captured 31% of the vote. And at least in terms of the neighborhoods I looked at, that is the largest percentage that anyone got in that election cycle. But again, 16 had the highest voter turnout. And of course, it is the area where a lot of the cops live. So if the first lesson we took from this episode was that the anti-vaxxers have no political relevancy. It is very safe to say that Erin Murphy has built a very, very good name-recognized brand that has increased across the city, and she is probably here to stay. As again, we saw in the overall vote totals, she just missed out on being the number one vote getter. And for me, if I had to try to figure out why that is, I'm going to do what I like to do, Kind of blame the media, because to the extent that we've seen in the press, they do not try to present any really ideological difference between the candidates. This got a little wrapped up during redistricting, and because of how outlandish and outspoken some of Frank Baker comments meant, a lot of the juxtaposition was kind of placed on him. And Aaron is a little bit smarter, and this is something that somebody pointed out to me. It's absolutely true. If you look at how Erin has shifted in her social media, she is no longer really relying on Twitter as a main avenue of how she's getting all these jabs and hits in. Instead, she seems to have a very, very good partnership with the Boston Herald. And it seems very clear from a lot of the recent stories, especially from Gayla Colley, that she seems to be the source and that she is really going through gala using the publication of the Boston Herald for her political messaging, and not really as much the Twitter hits that she was doing previously. And just to point out another example, like during redistricting, her just sitting, you know, right next to Rootsie, as Rootsie was leading this charge to try to go after, and now I'm going to use districts correctly, but... District 5 and District 6 and District 7, she was just sitting there quietly. And so she has definitely gotten, and maybe she always was, I don't know, but she has seemed to up her political game in a way that has been very effective in terms of translating to votes, which is a scary thing because judging by her, how she has actually voted, and many of the things that she said on many of the topics that we care about in terms of the, what benefits of the city, such as policing, such as her statements around people who are homeless on mass and that this is not a person you want getting political power. This is very much a lock them up, throw away the key, let's get rid of the others so that we, the good people of Boston, are safe. A uh, reincarnation of Louise Day Hicks, so to speak. And really, my last thought on this is that I think Julia has a very high floor. I think she is safe. I think she has a political lane that is going to maintain, that is going to stick with her as we continue to enter this rightward trajectory. However, I think Erin Murphy, just has a much higher ceiling. So again, something to keep an eye on. But now let's look at what I'm really hopeful is going to be a big positive from this past election, and that is Henry Santana beating out Bridget Walsh for that final fourth slot. And Henry took it with 15.53% of the vote, Bridget with 12.17. Which was an increase because she ran the cycle previously from 7.7, 7, but not clearly good enough. And really, I think the big Takeaway, the big reason is that the white liberals did not embrace Bridget. Looking at the Back Bay Fenway area, Henry 18%, Bridget 10%. JP, this is my first time mentioning JP tonight, which is 19. Henry 21.26, I'm sure that vote made people feel better after their vote against Kendra. And Bridget only coming in at 7%. So in JP, 21% versus 7%. And everything else kind of falls like how you think it would. In the area that Bridget was always going to do the best in, we'll look at 16, again, the Adams Village. Henry still capturing 10%. Bridget, 22%. Southy areas, Henry, 10% and 10%. Bridget, 25% and 26%. But then when we get down, you know, things like that West Dorchester, East of Franklin Park, I'm sure at some point in this episode I've missed that up, but number 14, Henry comes in at 14%, Bridget only 4%. Like she's not, like she gets just crushed in those areas where Henry is still maintaining like 10, 11% of the vote in like Southie and Adams Village. Again, Bridget, it's 4.4%, 4.4%. Five percent in fourteen, in twelve Roxbury, Henry, fourteen percent Bridget again, four point five, and in those areas just to remind you, Clifton dominated. So you know just west of Franklin Park, Bridget's getting four point four seven, Clifton twelve point seven four. In fact, Sean beat out Bridget in that area, and then also Roxbury number twelve, Clifton comes in at thirteen percent, where Bridget, when you round up, is at five. And Sean beats her again. And for me, because then especially once you start looking at the numbers, like fundraising and how much people spent. So Clifton, if you look at all of his expenditures, comes in at 3,657 K. Now obviously Bridget performed much better than Clifton, but Clifton performed better in some neighborhoods, and Bridget, her expenditures were at 101,000. Like that is a massive difference. And Henry, like Bridget and Henry spent roughly the same amount of money. I think Henry's expenditures came in at 104,000. And Bridget, because she ran a previous cycle, she basically started this race already with 3,000 in her pocket. But if you just look at expenditures, Bridget and Henry were more or less the same. And Henry theoretically would have had less name recognition because Bridget already ran a cycle previously. And Henry, of course, benefited from having Michelle Wu not just publicly endorse him and put her arm around him, but just, you know, hand him a Rolodex of civic leaders, neighborhood leaders, community leaders. He was already working in the office, so he probably already had those numbers and those contacts, and of course, the all-important email and donor list. So, as I always say, best ways of getting elected, if you're not from a big family that's lived there forever... Then you got to work on someone's staff, and you got to inherit that list. And Henry did, and his turnout, his voters were pretty good across the city, where Bridget, and my guess is this is just a horribly run campaign, and all they focused on was increasing turnout in the areas where she was already going to dominate, like Southie, like Adams Village, and kind of just completely ignored the rest of the city, where for a such a weak field. I think if they maybe pushed Bridget more in those areas, people just would have given her like their third vote, their fourth vote. Oh, I met her once. She was nice. Oh, she talked to me at that pie eating festival. (laughs) I'm only mentioning that because I just had a slice of pie. But you get what I mean. I think a little retail politics in those neighborhoods, she would have been able to pick up some votes because it's just tough to create a list of four When you just have a lot of people that no one's ever heard of, especially, you know, again, in those like wealthy liberal white areas, just for her to have very low numbers there and also have horrible numbers in the areas of the city, which are predominantly people of color. I think it just shows you that she just didn't spend any campaign there. She didn't spend any cash there. So I don't know who's running your campaigns, Bridget, but I'm actually going to say they did a horrible, horrible job. Do I think even if you ran a great campaign, you would have beat Henry? Maybe not, probably not, but it would have been much closer than this ended up being. And I guess that means, you know, what do we have to look forward to? Next cycle, another mayoral election. So we'll have another significant turnout in voting participation, though, again, barely anyone votes anyway. Two-thirds are going to stay home under the best case scenario. But maybe we'll have, and I mean, it would be hard not to have a much better field of at-large candidates. I think the three incumbents, unless something drastic happens, be more or less safe. And we'll see, really, if Henry is able to solidify himself. We'll see how many people try to run in the Julia lane. We'll see what type of politician Henry turns out to be. We'll see if Aaron continues to improve in a scary way, to be honest. And of course, you know, uh, what will Rootsie be? Who is Rootsie? Are we going to see the Rootsie that sided with the white conservatives during redistricting? Or are we going to see the one that took the police commissioner and people to task over elements of the brick funding and the budget? And probably more importantly, is she going to just go with the wind like the rest of them and go to the right? Or are there some principles that she's ready to stand and fight for? All fun things that we'll get to see for this next Boston City Council in the future election. And I think those are all the lasting thoughts I had on it. I'm not going to do the district levels. If there's, you know, some big outcry to do so, might be interesting looking at District 5 to see, you know, what actually happened with Wakrado in a lot more, like, detail, but I might need a little assistance on that one because there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff which had to do with how that race went down. But anyway, those are my thoughts for you today. Thank you for taking this little trip down memory Lane from last November. And as always, if you would like to support the show... The best way of doing that is heading to patreon.com slash bostopiannews for as little as a cup of coffee a month. You can, hope, really just give me more and more motivation to do more podcast episodes, to do more of my news videos, to engage more on Twitter. If you give me money, I, I will post more. You know, not like a solid commitment, but, you know, maybe. I- I've been having a little bit of fun recently. And if you don't have the means to do so, that's okay, too. All of my content is free. for the time being. Quick disclaimer. But it is always great to have a like, a retweet. But actually, more importantly, just send it to people. Like just text them Be like, hey, he's talking about that thing we were talking about the other night. That's really the best way to do it. As everyone who's been involved in elections before, nothing can really beat peer to peer canvassing. And so with that, take care. And I hope you have a great rest of your day.